0: Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 136, The White Death. Of the Saracens. Nicephorus Phocas was born around 912 AD, the same time that Emperor Leo VI passed away. He grew up on the sprawling Phocas estates in Cappadocia, and despite their loss of prominence during the reign of Romanos le Capinos, they remained one of the leading families of the Empire. Their location in the borderlands and their numerous dependents, relatives, and animals made them essential to the Byzantine military. As soon as he could balance on a horse, Nicephorus would have been taught to ride, to fight, to hunt, and to do all the other things that aristocratic outdoorsmen enjoy. Despite their wealth and status, The Focus family did not pay others to do the hard graft for them. All of their sons were made to work and to lead armies. This meant adapting to a life of endless campaigning, spending all day on the saddle, sleeping on the ground, eating rations. Endless summers of traversing through rough mountain terrain, always scouting ahead, always a low-level buzz of danger in the air. We're told that Nicephorus was tough and brave, a particularly powerful warrior in his youth. We'd expect to hear no less, but there shouldn't be any doubt about the constitution required to thrive in this environment. The Focards also seem to have taken their Christian faith seriously, and given the hardy routine they were forced to maintain, it's no surprise that they were attracted to the ascetic life. Nicephorus's uncle, Michael Malaenos, was a celebrated monk. He had abandoned the secular life and retreated up a mountain in Bithynia to live in semi isolation. The future emperor admired this dedication and visited his uncle on several occasions. Sources claim that Nicephorus himself would have become a monk had not life intervened the way it did. And though we should be careful of potential hyperbole, the strict disciplinarian who insisted on his heavy cavalry praying before a charge doesn't seem an implausible novice. We can be pretty sure that Nicephorus and his brothers were all given junior commands in the armies of John Corcuas, and spent their twenties and thirties learning how best to outmaneuver the Arabs in the mountains. Nicephorus married into the Malainos family and had a son who he named Bardas after his father. Unfortunately, both wife and son had died before he became emperor. Supposedly, the boy perished in a hunting accident. Nicephorus was known to be a vegetarian, very much fitting his ascetic image, and one source says that he gave up meat in mourning at his son's passing. Despite the abstemious, pious life he lived, Nicephorus had an ego. Fair enough for a commander who came of age at the very moment when the scales tipped in the borderlands, allowing the Romans to outmuscle their enemies. Once he'd tasted success against Cefatola, he wanted more. He was keen for his triumphs to demonstrate his God-favored status, and as we'll see, he will continue to lead the armies in person as emperor, determined that the credit and legitimacy which accompanies victory should remain his several writers have left us a physical description of the emperor. I've put up the usual modern illustration of Nicephorus on the website, but it's not actually very helpful. It's based on a more traditional royal portrait of Vasilev's rather than portraying the features which writers describe. The emperor was dark in complexion, with thick curly hair, stocky and broad-shouldered. This presents a significant contrast to the tall, slim, sickly Constantine VII. We get confirmation of this picture from both eastern and western sources. One of Safe's court poets likens Nicephorus to an ox. Unflattering as that is, it does fit with his thick frame. We get significantly more information from our western author, which amusingly is Liutprand of Cremona. I talked about Leoprand during the fundraising episode. He visited Constantinople in 949, and was charmed by the Porphyrogenitos and his city. He would return 19 years later, representing the new emperor of the West, Otto II. We'll get to the details in a future episode, but let's just say that the trip was a disaster for the sensitive bishop. Outraged at his treatment by the blunter regime of Nicephorus, Liodprand took out his pen and savaged the Vasilefs once he was home. He describes Nicephorus as short, fat-headed, tiny, mole-eyed, grey-bearded, big-bellied, and smelly. Putting this information together, we emerge with a picture of a powerfully built man, not as tall as his predecessors, and not as young as he was. But he never pretended to be born to the purple. He ascended the throne as the bringer of victory, and at the perfectly reasonable age of 51. Though several men had seized the throne in the past century and a half, none of them had been the empire's active field commander. Not since Leo V, the Armenian, which is an interesting comparison, given that Leo was murdered by one of his best friends seven years later. No matter how impressive the general, a military takeover always seems to lead to further conflict. Think of the original Phocas, no relation, overthrown by Heraclius. Or Leontius and Apsimar, executed by the returning Justinian II. While Leo's murder by Michael of Amorium unleashed the bitter civil war with Thomas the Slav. The very demonstration that the top job can be grabbed seems to prompt imitators. And probably the infusion of military men into senior palace roles leads to disgruntlement amongst the existing elite. This toxic combination is one to keep an eye on. A more obvious comparison for Nicephorus's situation would of course be that of Romanos Capinos 50 years earlier. Both took control of a regency council and made themselves senior colleague to a junior Macedonian prince. And, of course, both men broke with long-standing Roman precedent by not getting rid of the existing imperial family. Romanus had been so accommodating on this front that his family were largely swept away when Constantine came to power. No one knew what Nicephorus's plans were. It would be a decade before young Basil could conceivably expect to inherit so there was no real need for a decision today. Romanus had married the Porphyrogenitos to his daughter in order to provide a sense of legitimate continuity for his reign. Nicephorus was in a different position. He had no daughter to marry to the infant princes, but he was a widower, as was the empress Theophano. The obvious way to bring the two houses together was staring everyone in the face. But objections were raised. The patriarch Polyuctus, always keen to protect church authority, demanded that the new emperor serve a two year period of penance for remarrying. This was, of course, deeply irritating to Nicephorus, who didn't want his public relations honeymoon soured by controversy. However, Given the uproar which Leo VI's fourth marriage had caused, he could hardly dismiss his bishop's concerns. Then, even worse, someone pointed out that Nicephorus had actually stood as godfather to young Basil. In the eyes of the church, godparents had a sacred bond to the family they were spiritually supporting. To then marry the child's mother was a sin. A committee had to be formed in order to smooth this over, and the unconvincing excuse was given that it was actually Bardas Nicephorus's father, who'd stood as godparent. It's hard for us to know what the truth was. Eventually, though, the needs of politics won out, and the couple were married in September 963, about a month after the Vasilev's triumphal entry into the city. Modern historians question how intimate this union really was. Nicephorus's asceticism does not seem a natural fit with Theophano's more worldly reputation, and not to mention the 30-year age gap between them. No children issued from the marriage, and with separate male and female quarters in the palace, it's quite possible that the two were content to be wed in name only. Thanks to his starring role in the emperor's takeover of the city, Basil Le Capinos returned to the role of Parakimominos that he had enjoyed under Constantine the Seventh. This made him the chief eunuch at court with a variety of responsibilities. In terms of power, he probably ranked second to the emperor's brother Leo. He was put in charge of state finances and was heavily involved in government policy. In a rather sweet move, the elderly Bardus was given the title Caesar, which technically made him next in line for the throne, but that wasn't a relevant concern. A moment that really made me laugh was Leoprand of Cremona's rude comment about Bardus, Remember that Liadpran's visit to Constantinople is five years in the future from where we are now. So at that point, Bardas would have been about 90. And remember that he'd suffered a bad facial scar in battle with dola So here's the emperor's dad enjoying his soup at an imperial banquet, and Liadpran's only comment is, Ugh, he looks about a 150 years old. a final small piece of introduction nicephorus is of course almost always known as nicephorus phocas nikiforos phocas whereas of course it would be accurate to simply call him nicephorus the second the first being everyone's favorite logothete who marched off to pliska and never came back in part because of the lack of surnames for earlier rulers and in part because of his glorious reputation, the full name has stuck. Nicephorus spent his first year in office at the capital, establishing his rule. This gets us into another interesting aspect of the usurpation. Nicephorus was, after all, the first landed magnate to become emperor since we've begun to use that term. As is common across all societies across time, those who live a very different life from those in the metropolis tend to have a suspicion of the central government. Despite being on the state's payroll for most of his career, it's probable that Nicephorus shared these views. In the text on skirmishing, which he commissioned, there are comments about the negative impact of government taxation and the role of theme judges. The feeling being expressed is that unfair exactions are ruining the farms of potential soldiers, and if the local stratijos were left in charge of local matters, then more men would prosper and be able to fill the ranks. Now that he was in power, though, phocas made no effort to reform provincial administration. On the contrary... As the commander of a large and expensive army, Nicephorus would take steps to increase exactions across the land. Not new taxes, but just proper enforcement of the government's rights. This attitude has prompted some scholars to pour cold water on the whole issue of landed magnates, and it's true that once in power, this prime example of magnatedom would rule much as any other emperor did. However, Nicephorus came from a class of men with a different attitude to those who'd lived forever on the shores of the Bosphorus. They had glimpsed the riches of the Arab world and knew that glory and land were there for the taking. The possibilities of that world led to a quite different outlook from the palace-based Macedonians. A couple of examples will illustrate this. One is that Nicephorus wanted to keep a large, essentially standing army in the field. Throughout the reigns of Constantine and Romanus II, the question of peace had been raised on the eastern front. At this point, both Saif and the emir of Tarsus were feeling so vulnerable that they would have accepted some form of truce. The Romans had shown repeatedly that they could defeat their enemies wherever they appeared, so this was now a reasonable proposition that they might accept. Had Romanus II lived, he would have had to consider where he wanted to draw the line. His troops now controlled the whole of the Taurus Mountains. It was a good place to stop if you were looking for one. Nicephorus had no interest in stopping there. Whether it was because of a hatred for safe or for the Arabs generally, or whether he believed that Byzantium would be safer with a few more conquests, or if he was greedy for land and glory, we don't know. But what we do is that the emperor had a different priority from any of those who'd come before him. He saw expansion as necessary to his rule, and that affected his policies accordingly. One could argue that Nicephorus had little choice in this, He'd been waved into the city as a conquering hero. To stop now would be a major letdown to citizens eager for more glory. Certainly his image-makers went to work on this theme. An ivory reliquary made during his reign carries the following inscription. Formerly, Christ gave the cross to the mighty master Constantine for his salvation, but now The Lord, by the grace of God, Nicephorus, possessing this, routs the barbarian peoples. During his visit, Leoprand of Cremona noted that this image had been welded into imperial acclamations. He witnessed a procession where he heard the choir's chant, Behold, the morning star approaches. In his eyes the sun rays are reflected. Nicephorus our prince, the white death of the Saracens. The reference here is to the Arabs going white with fear, not a racial thing. The emperor was dark-toned himself. The second example of Nicephorus's different perspective came through legislation. He would continue to issue laws on land ownership, as Constantine had before him and Romanus before that. We'll touch on some other aspects of this in the future. The law I want to focus on now is a new regulation on donations to the church. Nicephorus was concerned that every inch of arable land was used well, so that he could tax it and use that money to support his army. So he didn't like seeing land left to the church in the wills of well-meaning parishioners. Churches and monasteries would sometimes leave these fields idle, lacking the manpower to exploit them. And at the other end of the scale, he also objected to wealthy monasteries gobbling up productive land, removing it from some of the exactions of the exchequer. So his new law forbid donations of land... To Christian institutions. He was happy for people to leave money, slaves, or animals to the church. Fine, they can all be used to increase production, but land itself must stay in the hands of the public. He didn't present this as an economic issue, but a moral one. The law came attached with many biblical quotes supporting the idea that Jesus hadn't wanted a wealthy church, and that the original ascetics had lived in the desert, not in grand monastic houses surrounded by vast estates. This law flowed neatly from Nicephorus's personal piety. He welcomed the creation of small hermitages where true ascetics could live away from the world, but wanted to curb the excesses of the wealthy, who, as I've mentioned before, would often found monasteries to help shield family estates though previous emperors and nicephorus i comes to mind had also targeted these institutions most rulers left them alone in part because clamping down on holy men usually leads to bad press and because most regimes want to court the elites and keep them docile nicephorus's new priorities had the potential to stir up resentment against these existing interests. Hopefully that gives you a flavour of the changes which accompanied the focus takeover of government. In some ways, nothing much changed. In the East, the wars resumed. At home, prosperity continued to grow. But in others, the arrival of a magnate in office brought to the forefront societal conflicts which had been bubbling. For the past century. As a sign of his changing circumstances, Nicephorus also suffered his only military setback during his first year in office. I haven't followed events in Sicily closely since the Arab takeover, largely because the Byzantines will never recover it. However, there were various revolts on the island, both by disgruntled soldiers against their emir, and by native Christians against Muslim rule. Various tiny ports have occasionally been captured by the Sicilians, and calls for Byzantine aid have been sounded. One such call came in 963, and Nicephorus dispatched a fleet. Presumably, the hope was that the Romans could establish a foothold on the island, from which a reconquest could one day be mounted. But Sicily's distance from Constantinople remained the biggest obstacle to potential success. The Arabs had always had the better of these contests, and this was to be no different. A Roman force landed on the island, but was routed. And as we saw with Crete, that was really the end of the matter. A short while later, the fleet were also defeated and driven off. According to an Arab historian... The Saracens used frogmen to swim under the Byzantine ships and destroy their rudders. But who knows? Back on dry land, Sefa Dola launched more raids on Romania while Nicephorus was settling into the palace. You have to admire Safe's determination and perseverance. Unfortunately, the raids did little of significance, and the emir himself... Seems to have suffered a stroke. He was taken home, where infighting continued within his realm. In December of that year, nine sixty-three, John Zimisces led the counterattack, again favoring a winter mountain crossing. Nicephorus had determined that Cilicia would be his next target. He'd already softened up its defenses. And John's job was to further incapacitate them before the Emperor himself arrived the following year. John sought battle with the Tarsiat army and managed to drive a wedge right down the middle of their forces. One half routed back to safety, the other was trapped between Zimisces and the mountains. Their commander ordered them to make for a nearby hill where they could at least negate the Roman cavalry. Several thousand men huddled together nervously as John surrounded them. War is a brutal thing, and naturally there was much hatred between the Arabs and Romans. However, it suited both sides to observe certain formalities of conduct, protection of ambassadors, prisoner exchanges, truces, and so on, The men up on the hill would normally expect some kind of deal. Perhaps a portion of them would be enslaved and the rest would go free, or some kind of tribute offered in exchange for their safety. As you know, the absolute last thing a Roman army wanted was to fight an enemy to the last man. That sort of attritional combat was something they couldn't normally afford but these were strange days. The Romans outnumbered their enemy considerably, and they had orders to hamstring the defences of Cilicia. They were not here to win an engagement, they were here to conquer. Zimisces had never been afraid of the sight of blood, and so he gave the order to massacre the enemy. His men dismounted and advanced up the hill on foot. Slaughtering the Arabs to the last man. John had taken the dictates of the preceptor to their logical conclusion. There were abandoned spoils all over the nearby battlefield, which his men had been ordered to ignore. Instead, they pursued their routing enemy until they were annihilated. Sources on both sides agree this was conduct outside the bounds of normal warfare and extremely shocking. The Muslim population of the nearest town actually abandoned their homes when they heard the news. They left that night and fled to Mopsuestia. According to legend, the blood of the fallen Arabs drenched the sides of the hill and it became known that as the mountain of blood. Zimisces marched on Mopsuestia afterwards and placed it under siege. That city and Tarsus both had major defensive walls and couldn't easily be captured. Though he stayed for three months, the domestic eventually ran out of food and had to leave. He smashed down the defences of the city's port before departing and everyone knew he would be back. Next time, Nicephorus himself returns to finally conquer the lands which had been the home of Jihad for two and a half centuries.